Last week, we concluded our service by singing Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Often known as the Battle Hymn of the Reformation, it is a song of defiant confidence in the face of persecutions, trials, and tribulations of every kind. Luther, of course, had in mind the enemies of his own day, the Catholic Church and the Catholic rulers who sought to suppress and to stamp out the newborn Protestant Church. But he also cast his eye wider, including all of the church's enemies in that phrase, and mortal ills prevailing. I won't comment on the whole song, although I'm sorely tempted to do so, but rather I want to draw your attention to the fourth and final verse. Speaking of the word of the gospel that shall fell the prince of darkness grim, that was the theme of the third verse, Luther writes this, That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. According to Luther, if the church has the word of the gospel, the spirit, and the gifts then it has everything it needs. Take away our goods, take away our kindred, take away our mortal life. Kill our bank accounts, kill our brothers, kill our bodies. God's truth abides and his kingdom remains forever. Now I've read enough Luther to tell you he really believed that. He really believed that what made the church the true church and therefore the unconquerable church was the word, the spirit, and the gifts. If we have those, we have everything we need. I would love for a mighty fortress is our God to become an anthem of sorts for First Baptist Nixa during these uncertain and difficult days. I don't know what the outcome of this pandemic will be. I don't know how many will die. I don't know what its effect on the economy will be. I don't know what it will mean for our jobs. I just don't know. But I know this. If we have the word, the spirit, and the gifts, we've got everything we need. Last week, we began looking at Romans 12, 3 through 8, along with some other relevant passages from 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. And I argued that in Paul's mind, every true believer is a charismatic and every true church is a charismatic church. That is, every true church is comprised of believers who have been baptized by the Spirit and possess particular spiritual gifts or charismata distributed according to the sovereign will of the Spirit. The distinction between charismatic and non-charismatic churches is, in, in my view, a false distinction. Any believer who is not baptized by the Spirit is not a true believer. And any church that does not possess and practice the gifts of the Spirit is not a true church. We shouldn't be afraid of the term charismatic And we shouldn't forfeit that vocabulary to the Pentecostals or worse, to the faith-healing charlatans on television. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. 
We need not choose, indeed we must not choose, between charismatic chaos on the one hand and a rigid and unbiblical cessationism on the other. We should not force upon the biblical text a false distinction between those gifts deemed miraculous and those gifts deemed non-miraculous regarding the miraculous gifts to have ceased while the non-miraculous gifts remain. All the gifts of the Spirit are supernatural and all continue throughout the present age, though not necessarily in the same proportion or to the same degree. Rather, I propose that the church experiences extraordinary seasons in which the Spirit works in extraordinary ways through the more extraordinary gifts, like the signs and the wonders that we see throughout the book of Acts. And the church experiences ordinary seasons in which the Spirit works in ordinary ways through the more ordinary gifts, such as we see in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. The extraordinary is not normative for the church in all places and at all times. The ordinary is by definition normative. But that does not deny that the extraordinary still happens today and indeed could still happen at First Baptist Nixa. The Spirit sovereignly distributes his gifts as he wills for the good of the church, for the advance of the gospel, and for the glory of Christ. No gift is to be despised. Indeed, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, the gifts of the Spirit are to be pursued and practiced in the church. And preeminent over all of the Spirit's gifts is the Word of God, which alone, through the power of the Spirit, is able to save those who believe. The gifts don't save. The Word of the Gospel saves. The gifts are the servants of the word, a blessing to the church and to the world. In Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 8, we find Paul's description of a charismatic New Testament church. And remember, this passage's connection to the two verses that came before, which stand at the head of this entire final section of Romans. Romans 12, 1 and 2 called us, in view of God's rich mercies, which Paul defined in chapters 1 through 11, to live transformed lives of worship before God and before a watching world. The mercies of God, producing the works of God, in the people of God, by means of the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, to give us the mind of God, that we may live a life of worship to the glory of God. The question now is, what would a church full of people like that, transformed people, what would a church like that look like? And the first answer Paul gives is that it would be a charismatic church, possessing and practicing the charismata, the spiritual gifts which God has distributed to the church by his grace. In this passage, verses 3 to 8, Paul gives us three characteristics that should mark a New Testament charismatic church. 
The first, which we looked at last week, was that a truly charismatic church must be marked by a charismatic humility in which every member views himself as both indispensable. In other words, every member understands that the church cannot properly function without you. And yet every member views themselves as insufficient. In other words, the church cannot properly function with only you. Like the members of the body, each and every member of the church has necessary yet distinct gifts to be used for the good of the church, for the advance of the gospel, and for the glory of Christ. This morning, we move now to the second characteristic that marks a truly charismatic church, which is its charismatic diversity. In other words, there is not just one spirit-filled, spirit-gifted, charismatic leader in the church. Rather, the whole church is comprised of spirit-filled charismatics possessing a diversity of gifts in order to fulfill the work of the ministry. So let's read this passage beginning in verse 4. We dealt with verse 3 last week. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now again, we see how Paul's metaphor of the church as a human body brings out the necessity of this charismatic diversity among the body. The body works and functions precisely because not all members have the same gifts and function. The human body works because not all members do the same thing or are designed to do the same thing. The hand does not walk. The foot does not speak. The mouth does not hear. The ear does not smell. The nose does not think and so on and so forth. But each member of the body is specially and specifically designed by God to fulfill its ordained function. Even so, every member of the church is specially and specifically gifted by God in order to fulfill his or her God-ordained function. Every member is vital. No member is sufficient. As the primary teaching pastor of this church, I'm kind of like the mouth of this local body. I probably say more words in a given week than the rest of the church combined. In fact, if you've ever been in a meeting with me, you know it's nearly impossible to get me to shut up. But what good is a mouth without hands and feet and ears and a heart? Beloved, we, First Baptist Nixa, is a charismatic body. Each member spiritually gifted and spirit-empowered to fulfill its appointed function. So the question is, what is your gift? And what is your function in this body? 
What is your unique and indispensable role in this church? What ministry in and through this church has God empowered and equipped you to fulfill? In verses 6 through 8, Paul illustrates this diversity of the spiritual gifts by listing seven. And it should be noted that this list is not exhausted. These, these are not all of the spiritual gifts which the Spirit gives to the church. But it is, I think, representative. These seven gifts ought to be represented in a New Testament charismatic church. Other lists are given in Scripture that include other gifts, but these seven provide us with a good representative sampling of the kind of gifts that a truly charismatic church possesses. And because God has given these gifts for the purpose of ministry, it also gives us a good representative sampling of the kinds of ministries to which God has called and for which he has equipped his church. So what I'd like to do this morning is to briefly walk through these seven gifts to see how God has made provision for the ministry of the church through the distribution of his charismatic gifts. The first gift that Paul mentions is the gift of prophecy. If prophecy, he says, let us use it in proportion to our faith. Now, prophecy was a gift that was highly valued in the New Testament church. It occurs, in fact, in all four of the New Testament lists of the charismatic gifts. Now, although prophecy sometimes in the New Testament included the prediction of future events, we see that, for instance, in Acts 11 and 21, That's not prophecy's essential character. Often when we hear the word prophecy, we think of someone predicting something that's going to happen in the future. That's not the predominant way in which the word is used in the New Testament. That's not the essential character of New Testament prophecy. It is not primarily a prediction of what's going to happen next Tuesday or or on any other given future date. In its essence, New Testament prophecy involved proclaiming to the community information that God had revealed to the prophet for the church's edification. Let me read that again. That definition comes from Doug Moo. New Testament prophecy involved proclaiming to the community information that God had revealed to the prophet for the church's edification. And he derives that definition from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And it's important to note that Paul everywhere, everywhere places the authority of the prophet under the authority of the apostle which means by extension that New Testament prophecy exists today under the authority of the apostolic word. That is scripture. In 1 Corinthians 14, for instance, Paul insists that prophecy must, it must be scrutinized and judged by other prophets, indeed by the whole church. 1 Corinthians 14, 29. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one. You see Paul's emphasis upon order in the church, not chaos, 
order, charismatic order in the charismatic church. You can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. For the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is God, not a God of confusion, but of peace. So by what standard were the words of prophets scrutinized and evaluated to see whether, the, whether they were really from God? Well, again, they were scrutinized and judged on the basis of the apostolic word. I think that's what Paul's driving at in that phrase in Romans 12, 6. If prophecy, according to the proportion of our faith or in proportion to our faith, which I have to say is not a very accurate translation of Paul's actual words, and I think obscures what Paul actually meant. Literally what Paul says is according to the analogy of the faith, according to the analogy of the faith. In other words, the prophet is to prophesy words that are analogous or fitting with the faith. That is, the faith once for all delivered to the saints through the word of the apostles and is now inscripturated in the Bible. So if prophecy happens in the New Testament church, Paul says, it must happen according to the analogy of the faith. It must be analogous or fitting with this apostolic word. True prophets never, ever, speak contrary to the once-for-all word that God has already spoken. So what would the gift of prophecy look like in our church, in First Baptist Nixa? Well, I tend to equate prophecy with the specific application of biblical truths or biblical principles. You might say the specific extension of biblical truths or biblical principles to the specific circumstances of specific people and specific congregations. And that can happen either from the pulpit, or it can happen in small group settings, or it can happen in one-on-one in -on -one counseling situations. In accordance with Paul's use of the term in 1 Corinthians 14.24, I often pray for the gift of prophecy before I preach. I prayed for it this morning. I pray that in the public assembly of the church, God would put words in my mouth, which I didn't plan and I didn't script, but that speak directly, specifically to and reveal the secrets of men's hearts that, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, they may fall on their face in worship and declare, truly God is among you. The very same prayer could be prayed in a small group setting. It could be prayed in a one-on-one -on -one counseling situation. And indeed, I often pray for that as well. It might look like me preaching. And in the course of my exposition, suddenly an application of the text, an extension of the text, jumps into my head. And that application speaks directly to someone who is sitting there. And it reveals to them some hidden sin or fear or temptation or burden. 
Or it might look like a counseling situation when I'm suddenly impressed with a sense of certainty that some sin exists under the surface problem that they came to talk about. And it's that root sin that really needs to be exposed and confessed and healed if we're going to make any progress whatsoever. It's not that such a word of prophecy, such a revelation from God exists alongside the inscripturated word of God and, and bears equal authority with scripture. Not at all. That is not at all what New Testament prophecy is. New Testament prophecy, rather, is a word from God mediated through a fallible human messenger, that would be me, and and therefore must be checked, scrutinized, judged by the church against the infallible word of God once for all given to us in Scripture. So if I say something in a sermon or or in counseling that does not accord with Scripture, if I make some false application or false extension and say this is a word from God, you should disregard it, and furthermore, you should rebuke me. Rather, New Testament prophecy is the specific application or specific extension of this apostolic word to a specific individual or to the specific congregation in front of me. And although I think the gift of prophecy tends to be given in combination with the other pastoral gifts, such that most prophets in the New Testament church are pastors, the gift of prophecy is by no means confined to the pastorate. It is a gift which the Spirit gives to the whole church in specific seasons. Now, much more could be said about the gift of prophecy in the New Testament church, but it's going to have to await a future study of 1 Corinthians. All I want to add at this point is that clearly, The New Testament authors expected prophecy to function in some capacity in every New Testament church as evidenced by its appearance in this representative list of the spiritual gifts of the charismata in Romans 12, uh, as evidenced by its appearance in all four lists of spiritual gifts which are given in Scripture, and as evidenced by its appearance even in the pastoral epistles, uh, 1 Timothy 1.18 and 4.14, the pastoral epistles which describe not the extraordinary ministry of the Spirit, but rather the ordinary ministry of the Spirit during ordinary seasons. And yet, we still find the gift of prophecy. So let us at First Baptist Nixa heed Paul's counsel to the Thessalonians, given in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, where he says, Do not quench the Spirit, and do not despise prophecies, but test everything, and hold fast to what is good. And Paul's counsel to the Corinthians In 1 Corinthians 14.1 when he says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. 
The second gift that Paul mentions is the gift of service. He says, if service in our serving. Now, once again, I want to quibble a little bit with the translation here. Literally, Paul says something like, if deaconing in the diaconate. Now, that obviously doesn't translate well into English, but it does expose the fact that the word underlying service here is the word deacon. While it is true that the Greek word diakonia can mean service or ministry in the more generic sense, it does so often in Scripture. Yet the other six terms in this list, in this context, in Romans 12, all refer to specific forms of ministry. Prophecy, teaching, exhortation, contribution, leadership, and mercy. In other words, the generic sense of ministry would be out of place in this list of specific gifts and specific functions. Furthermore, all believers are called to service or ministry in some form. But Paul very clearly says not everyone has this gift. Remember verse 6, having gifts that differ. He says if some prophecy, some service. Therefore, it stands to reason, in my mind at least, that what Paul has in mind by the word diakonia in this verse would be would be specifically the, the gifts and the ministry belonging to the deacons of the church. Just as every New Testament church needs prophets, who will usually be the elders of the church, to apply the word of God to the congregation, so every New Testament church needs deacons who will carry out this word of God in practical forms of ministry. For an obvious example of this interplay between prophecy and and the diaconate, uh, the gift of the deacon, uh, just look to Acts chapter 6 and the crisis that arose around the issue of the feeding of the Jerusalem widows. In in a congregation that by that time in Acts chapter 6 would have numbered, I mean, thousands the number of widows needing daily food and care would have been immense, hundreds likely. The task was monumental, even in the best of circumstances. But the circumstances in Acts chapter 6 were not the best. Rather, racial and, and cultural tensions arose between the Hebrews and the Hellenists, such that the widow ministry had ground to a halt and the issue threatened to split the church, which was still in its infancy. So what did the church do? Well, the apostles, who had the gift of prophecy, spoke a spirit-inspired word from God, specifically to the church, specifically for these circumstances, instructing the church to set aside seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom to carry out the ministry in the power and the grace of those charismatic gifts so that the apostles could devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer, which were their own charismatic gifts. And what was the result of this charismatic church functioning with their respective charismatic gifts. Acts 6-7 says the word of God continued to increase 
and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. That's the effect of a truly charismatic church functioning with their charismatic gifts. The third gift Paul lists is the gift of teaching. The one who teaches in his teaching. Now, I have no problem with that translation. While prophecy refers to discerning and declaring the the word and the will of God to specific people or specific congregations in specific circumstances, teaching refers to the interpretation, explanation, and application of Scripture for the church. What I'm doing right now is not prophecy. It's teaching. It is unpacking, unfolding, expositing the scripture, showing you what it means and how it applies to your life and to this church. It's not a new word from God that I bring to you Sunday after Sunday. It is the word once for all delivered to the saints. The gift of teaching involves at least three sub-gifts, you might call them. It involves the gift of interpretation, okay, the ability to understand Scripture, to see threads running through the Bible, to be able to make connections, to do theology. It is a gift of the Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 2.10-16. to It also involves the gift of application. That is the ability to see how Scripture connects to the life of the church. And finally, it involves the gift of communication. The ability to communicate biblical truth clearly and convincingly to the congregation. Now again, like the gift of prophecy, the gift of teaching will usually, but not exclusively, be found among the elders of the church. Why do I say that? Because one of the main reasons why the elders are elders is because they bear the qualifications of teaching. They are able to teach, able to instruct, able to refute, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. Fourth, Paul lists the gift of exhortation, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. Now, this word could also be translated the one who encourages or the one who comforts or the one who consoles. It has a broad range of meaning. This gift is usually found in conjunction with the gift of teaching, particularly in the realm of application. It is the application of biblical truth to the heart, the conscience, the will of the hearer. But I think that Paul has more in mind a one-on-one setting for this gift rather than the public setting of teaching. In this case, I think the gift of exhortation might be what we would call the gift of counseling. It's the ability to apply biblical truth to the specific circumstances, struggles, griefs, or sins of another. The fifth gift Paul lists is that of giving, the one who contributes in generosity. Generosity, again, might be better translated as simplicity or singleness of mind. In other words, it's giving without ulterior motives, without um, unspoken strings attached. 
It's giving out of love, out of joy. We often say that uh, in that point of our worship service, when we collect the offering, ministry takes money. And that's true. It's one of the primary reasons why a church covenants together, because in sharing our resources, we can accomplish more together than we could apart. I don't have the personal financial resources on my own to support a missionary. Neither do most of you. But together, we support three, even more through the cooperative program. But as this is a spiritual gift that is not given to all members of the church, as Paul says in verse 6, what he seems to have in mind here is extraordinary giving. That is, giving above ordinary giving. Giving above the regular proportionate giving of each member. Some who have the charismatic gift of giving also seem frankly, to have the charismatic gift of making money. While most of us will spend our careers on a pretty stable salary schedule, there are members who seem to have the uncanny ability to amass wealth. They seem to have the Midas touch. Every business that they put their finger on turns to gold. When those two gifts combine, the gift of amassing wealth and the gift of cheerfully giving it away, extraordinary things happen in and through the church. But I don't want to give the impression that the charismatic gift of giving lies only with the wealthy. It doesn't. In fact, one of the times that we see this charismatic gift of giving employed and on display in the New Testament, it was a gift that was given to a church that was dirt poor. First or Second Corinthians, rather, uh, chapter 8, Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, so he's writing to the Corinthian churches, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace, same word as found in verse 6. The grace of God, the gift of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part for they gave according to their means and as I can testify beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. So the gift of giving seems then to be given sovereignly, regardless of one's wealth, for a specific purpose. In other words, we're not talking about one's regular offerings. And it is accompanied by great joy. It's a glorious gift. And it's one that the church should earnestly seek. Sixth, Paul lists the gift of leadership. The one who leads with zeal. Now once again, those possessing the gift of leadership will usually be the elders of the church. Because Possessing this gift is one of the qualifications required of elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. But it's also a qualification of deacons in 1 Timothy 3.12. 
suggesting that the gift is not only given to the elders of the church, but it's given to those in the church who are responsible for the oversight and the management of ministry. It is the charismatic ability to manage funds, plans, and people. And the idea is is not one of a man exhausted with his head in his hands, dreading heading into yet another meeting, wishing that someone else were in charge. Rather, this gift is exercised, Paul says, with zeal. That is with diligence, with earnestness, with fire. Finally, Paul lists the gift of mercy. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is up close, intimate, personal, hands-on ministry to those who are in need, whether that need be spiritual or emotional or physical. It's exercised, for instance, by the bedside of the dying and of the sick. It's exercised on the couch of the grieving. It's exercised on the floor of the despairing. It's exercised in word and in deed, in time and in touch. It's not content to say, I'll pray for you. Rather, the gift of mercy says, I will walk with you through this fire. It is not usually exercised in the middle of the day. It's usually exercised in the middle of the night. And it too is a glorious gift to be earnestly sought by the church. Because it is only by this gift of mercy that it can be exercised with cheerfulness. And cheerfulness is of the essence of mercy. Grudging mercy is no mercy at all. It's duty. Calvin wrote this. For as nothing gives more solace or peace to the sick or to anyone otherwise distressed than to see men cheerful and prompt in assisting them. So to observe sadness in the countenance of those by whom assistance is given makes them to feel themselves despised. If you're not giving mercy with cheerfulness, you are maybe non-verbally but still telling others you despise the fact that you have to serve them. That's not the gift of mercy. You can claim the gift of mercy when you can minister to others and say, truthfully, it is my joy to sit with you, to cry with you, to walk with you through this fire. Well, there you have it. That's Paul's representative description of a charismatic church exhibiting a charismatic humility as it exercises its charismatic diversity. But I want to close this two-part study of the charismatic church by mentioning one final characteristic. A truly charismatic church displays a charismatic intentionality. That is, a truly charismatic church does not sit back and passively await for these gifts, nor passively sit back and just let ministry come to them. That's not the way the New Testament speaks. 
Everywhere the charismatic gifts are mentioned in scripture, words like pursue, seek, desire, use are employed. The charismatic church is an active church, an intentional church. So I want to close this sermon by focusing upon those four little words found in verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And I thought the best way to do that, and so to conclude these two weeks, would be to give us an example of the way these seven gifts might function in our church. I have long been dissatisfied with the way that our church, and the same is true of most churches, I've been dissatisfied with the way that we handle benevolence needs of those who are outside of the church. Inside the church, I think we do fine. We come together to meet every need that arises within the household of faith. No member of this church goes hungry or without food, or without shelter. But we obviously cannot meet every need of every person that is outside of the church. And so what we tend to do is meet small needs here and there on an as-available basis. But these turn out to just be band-aids that we strap over a, a massive wound. They're not the cure. What these people need is far more than just a single night in a hotel or help with this month's utility bill or some groceries for this week. What they need is to be discipled. And what I've dreamed of for 10 years now is a ministry run out of our church that takes a more long-term approach to poverty. It would go something like this in my own mind. The church would purchase a duplex, furnish it, and stock it. We would take on two families at a time who are either homeless or are nearly there. They would agree to enter a six-month discipleship program during which they would make certain commitments, and their continuance in the program would be dependent upon their maintaining these commitments. They would commit to attend church weekly as a family, to meet weekly with an elder or a counselor for multifaceted discipleship that includes spiritual, financial, vocational, marital, and family counseling. They would commit to become and to remain gainfully employed. And they would commit to pay rent on a graduating scale, beginning at $0 the first month, $100 the second, 200 the third, and so on. By the end of the six-month program, the hope and the prayer would be that this family would be able to step right into a rent that they can now afford because it's now a part of their budget and because of a job that they've maintained now for six months, having made great strides toward emotional, financial, and relational health, and, we pray, having been converted to saving faith in Christ and having become baptized covenant members of our church. Then we would start all over with a new family and repeat the process. 
Now, this seems to me to be a far more effective way of dealing with poverty than simply throwing money at them and and wishing them well. And I've prayed specifically on at least two occasions for properties near our church, once at the church in Buffalo and once now in Nixa. And as of yet, it's not been the Lord's will to give those properties to us. But what if one day myself or another elder prompted by a strong, persistent, almost irresistible urging from the Spirit of God, convinced by that prompting that God was calling our church to step out in faith and take this step, they then told the church that this was the Lord's will for First Baptist Nixa. That would be the gift of prophecy. And what if someone in the church, upon hearing this word of prophecy, sensed within their spirit a strong, persistent, almost irresistible calling to donate the $200,000 necessary from a windfall that they just received from the sale of a business or from an inheritance that they just received from the death of a loved one? That would be the gift of giving. And what if someone in the church upon hearing this word of prophecy and upon hearing about the donation, sensed a strong, persistent, almost irresistible urging in their spirit to come and to tell the elders that they would take the lead in finding the duplex and in working out all of the logistical and legal issues related to the purchase of real property. That would be the gift of leadership. And what if some of the deacons upon hearing the word of prophecy, sensed in their spirits a strong, persistent, irresistible calling to oversee this ministry, including the maintenance, furnishing, and stocking of this duplex. That would be the gift of service. And what if during the course of this six-month program, this family comes to church and week by week, they hear the word of God faithfully expounded from the pulpit, And it reveals to their hearts by the Spirit the truth about God and sin and Christ and salvation. That would be the gift of teaching. And what if during the six-month program, a variety of people met with this family in order to give them wise, biblical, Spirit-given counsel regarding their finances, their jobs, their family, their marriage, their souls? That would be the gift of exhortation. And what if, what if there were a handful of members who, whose hearts just burst with compassion for these families such that they befriended them and they walked with them through every difficulty they faced along the way? That would be the gift of mercy. Beloved, that would be a charismatic church in action. That would be a church that would cause our neighbors and the nations to take notice and to say, truly, God is among them. First Baptist Nixa, the spirit and the gifts are ours. So let's use them for the good of the church, for the advance of the gospel, and for the glory of Christ.